Hi, this is Pastor Nelson Mercado. Thank you for tuning in to our podcast from the Nashville First Seventh-day Adventist Church. I hope you are blessed by today's message. Let's pray. Father, we are here, your children, your people, whom you've saved through the blood of Jesus. Father, we can say with certainty, thank you for the cross. Because it is Jesus' sacrifice that made it all possible. Lord, as we focus on this present truth message today and judgment, let us remember that because of the cross, judgment is good news. Help us now in our study. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please take out your study guides, side your bulletin. As usual, you'll see the uh, words underlined, go on your blanks on, on the screen. They'll be underlined on the screen, the ones that go on the, on the blanks. We're going to talk about today the investigative judgment. Now, I know that when, uh, when we've mentioned this judgment, the investigative judgment, maybe sometimes uh, the reaction of some, some of our well-meaning Adventists may be, why do we need to talk about the judgment? I think we need to revisit this doctrine. I've, I've, heard, it said, I've heard it said, friends. I, uh, I, I mentioned to you that I do a little investigative research, if you will, on social media, and, and I found many people, many of our church members that still call themselves Seventh-day Adventists and don't believe the investigative judgment, and they say they believe that we should do away with this doctrine. You may remember Des, the, the, the controversy with Desmond Ford, those of you who have been in the church for a long time. This is part of the problem that he had with the investigative judgment. But friends, this is present truth. I heard an amen over there. This is present truth. And because it's present truth, it is an invaluable, very important truth for this time that God wants everybody to know. There is a, a, a gathering, a recent gathering of seminary professors. And one teacher reported that in his school, at his school, the most damaging charge one student can lodge against another is that that person is too judgmental. And he found this, this, this very upsetting. You can't get a good argument going in class anymore, he said. As soon as somebody takes a stand on an important issue, someone else says that that person is being judgmental, and that's it, end of discussion. If everybody's intimidated. And many of the other professors nodded knowingly. There seemed to be a consensus that the fear of being judgmental has taken on epidemic proportions because nobody likes to be judged. But the Bible talks about judgment, friends, and we need to, we can't uh, uh, throw it away. We need, we need to be straight with it. We need to talk about it. So our scripture reading, and this is still, we are still in the first angel's message in our present truth series. We're still in the first angel's message it says, fear God and give glory to him. Why should we give glory to him? Because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and the springs of water. 
As I said, many people look at judgment as something negative because nobody likes to be judged. I mean, you may be uh, uh, talking to somebody, uh, maybe because this person is going in the wrong direction in his or her life, and, and, and you try to uh, advise them or counsel them, and they say, who are you to judge me, right? Who are you to judge me? In this case, judging means do not criticize me or my actions. You know, I, I, if you ever enjoyed uh, uh, these courtroom dramas on TV, or maybe you've uh, you know, gone to a trial, you may have sympathized with the defendant. It's not pleasant to be in the hot seat, is it? Not pleasant, yeah. You know, when bad things happen in the world, when we have all kinds of natural disasters, uh, a lot of well-meaning people say, oh, that's a judgment from God. It's a judgment from God. So again... Not, nobody would like to be judged. Nobody want, is happy about being judged by God. However, Revelation 14, 7 tells us that we ought to fear God and give glory to him. Why? Because the judgment has come. So it would seem that judgment is good news. Judgment is good news. But let, let's talk about what does it mean to fear God and give glory to him. Yeah, that's what John says, fear God and give glory to him because the hour of his judgment has come. What does this mean? There's a good book, uh, it's a commentary on the book of Revelation written by Ranko Stefanovic, Revelation of Jesus Christ, page 453 and 454. Notice what it says there. Fearing God and giving him glory have a special meaning in Revelation. While the former designates a right relationship with God, the latter suggests obedience to his commandments. A person comes to fear God after recognizing the Lord's great power and works. Fearing God leads one to repentance. Thus to fear God is to take him seriously, to make a decisive turnaround in life, enter into a right relationship with him, and be totally committed. God is then glorified through a life characterized by obedience to his commandments. And this is what the appeal of the first angel is all about. So notice, we ought, to, we ought to have a special relationship with God, be committed to him, repent, be walking in obedience because the judgment has come. Because the judgment has come. And while, again, the, uh, many will argue that maybe we need to be afraid of God because of the judgment, again, John uh, uh, suggest that the judgment is good news. And many of you maybe are thinking, well, you know, we don't like to hear about the judgment because I feel uncomfortable about being judged. But friends, if Jesus is Savior and Lord of your life, you have nothing to be afraid of. And by the way, you know, when we think about this section on the present truth series, the, the investigative judgment, this one in particular has three parts. And we're going to talk about not only the, the reality of the judgment, but why the judgment is necessary. But again, friends, if Jesus is your Savior, this is good news. You don't have to be afraid of the judgment. You don't have to be afraid of the judgment because it's good news. Amen? Amen? We should worship God. We should praise Him for it. Now, it's important to point out what Revelation 14.7 does not say. Revelation 14, 7 does not say, fear God and give glory to him, because at some point in the future, the judgment is going to start. That's not what it says. It says, fear God and give glory to him, because the judgment has come. 
So notice what this means is that as this message, uh, this present truth message is being proclaimed, part of the message is there is a judgment going on right now. It has already started. But now some people may, may wonder and, and ask, well, if it's already started, how do we know it has already started? And if it has already started, when did it start? It's important questions. These are important questions. Now, last time in our previous message when we talked about the thousand years of Revelation, we mentioned that judgment in Scripture has three phases. Three phases of the judgment. You have the investigative phase, you have the sentencing phase, and you have the execution phase. And we mentioned that this is not something that we have invented, that Adventists have invented themselves, because this, these are the phases that we you know, go on in our own judicial system. All three phases are there. The investigative phase, the sentencing phase, and the execution phase. Now, uh, others will call these phases the pre-advent judgment, which is what we're talking about today, the 1,000-year judgment, and the executive judgment. In our previous presentation, we talked about what the 1,000-year judgment and the executive judgment, which is when eventually you know, the judgment takes place of the wicked and they're finally destroyed. So these are the three phases of the judgment, and it's important that we keep it in mind. Now, uh, uh, understanding the, these three phases of the judgment is tied to the sanctuary. It's tied to the what? Sanctuary. The sanctuary. Remember, we talked about the sanctuary is extremely important in understanding the gospel message and its present truth. I share with you this, this quote from Patriarchs and Prophets, page 358. Ellen White says that through the sanctuary, the people were taught each day the great truths relative to Christ's death and ministration. And once a year, their minds were carried forward to the closing events of the great controversy between Christ and Satan. And so notice, again, the, 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 the sanctuary was that object illustration for us to understand the gospel message. And it carries all the way to our time. And so this investigative phase of the judgment, which is what we're focusing on today, notice it, it, the investigative phase of the judgment is represented by the services connected to the day of the day of atonement. The day of atonement in the sanctuary. Remember, at the end of the, 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 the cultic year, we had, they had the day of atonement. It was the day where the sanctuary was cleansed. If the day, that was the day of judgment for the Israelites. They had to be ready for that. So the Day of Atonement in the earthly tabernacle was a type of the investigative judgment. The Day of Atonement was, again, the, the day the sanctuary was cleansed, and it was a day of judgment for the children of Israel. The sanctuary was cleansed. This is very important because we're going to look at this statement, the sanctuary shall be cleansed. When the sanctuary was cleansed, remember, it was cleansed because every day throughout the year, the children of Israel brought their lamb uh, or, or, or goat. They would confess their sins. They would uh, um, uh, kill the animal, and the, and the blood was transferred to the sanctuary. It was a symbolism of the transfer of sin into the tabernacle, and at the end of the year, it had to be cleansed. This is why it's called the cleansing of the sanctuary, which took place on the Day of Atonement. Notice Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place 
once and for all, obtaining uh, eternal redemption. So all this tells us, friends, that there is a sanctuary in heaven that Jesus entered in. He entered into the most holy place. The, the, the earthly tabernacle was made by the pattern of the heavenly tabernacle. There is a tabernacle in heaven. And so there was, a, there was a day of atonement in the earthly sanctuary. It was a day of judgment. And that tells us that the same thing is happening in heaven. In heaven, Jesus is ministering as our high priest. There must be also a day in the heavenly sanctuary where the sanctuary was to be cleansed. Thus, a judgment that would start. Now, the prophet Daniel is told about a time when the sanctuary would be cleansed. We find it in Daniel chapter 8, verse 14. And he said unto me, For 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. So we see that again. The sanctuary shall be cleansed. So if the sanctuary was cleansed and the day of atonement was, was the day of judgment, Daniel is told that at some point after 2,300 days, according to this passage, the sanctuary shall be cleansed. But let's talk first about the 2,300 days. Because this is clearly a time prophecy. It's what? It's a time prophecy. And, and, and as such, time prophecies have a, a, for, a, a rule for interpretation. There's a rule for interpreting time, time prophecy. Now, while there isn't a Bible verse that says specifically this is how you interpret time prophecies, there is enough evidence to suggest the, the truth that a prophetic day equals a literal year. Notice there's three passages there. Numbers 14.34, Ezekiel 4.6, and Luke 13.32, where we see this, this pattern of a day for a year. And by the way, it isn't only Seventh-day Adventists who believe this. This concept of a day for a year. Don't think that's something unique to Seventh-day Adventists because even today, many of our Christian evangelical friends, including those, remember I, we talked a, a, a bit about uh, the, those who believe in the secret rapture and all those things are evangelical Christian friends. They also believe a day, the day for a year concept. In fact, I, I just finished reading a, a book on Armageddon because I'm doing some research for the second part of this book that we're talking about. And... And the gentleman's name is Bob Hope, interestingly enough. Not the same Bob Hope, obviously. Uh, um, and he was talking about the, the 70 weeks, and he understood that the 70 weeks were 490 years. So he understood this concept of a day for a year. So that clearly tells us then that when Daniel is told at, at the end of the 2300 days, the sanctuary shall be cleansed, in reality, there were years. 2,300 prophetic days of Daniel 8.14 equate to 2,300 literal years. So Daniel's told that at the end of 2,300 years into his future, there would be a sanctuary that was going to be cleansed. In other words, there would be a judgment that was going to take place at the end of those 2,300 years. So which sanctuary is being talked about today? Well, I, or he was told about. What sanctuary? Well, you know, after Daniel was told about the cleansing of the sanctuary, we read there in chapter 8, verse 15, that he was seeking wisdom to understand this vision. He didn't understand it. And so Gabriel is sent in verse 16 to help him understand. And I want you to notice what Gabriel tells Daniel about this vision of the 2300 days. Understand, son of man, that this vision refers to when? To the time of the end. 
So if the vision refers to the time of the end, it could not be referred to a temple that existed in Daniel's time. Of course, when Daniel wrote this, the temple had been destroyed by the Babylonians anyway. Okay, But in essence, uh, Daniel is being told, 2,300 years into your future, the world is going to enter a period of time known as the time of the end, and that's when the sanctuary shall be cleansed. So whatever judgment is being referred to here is a judgment that will take place 2,300 years into Daniel's future when we start the time of the end. Now we have... T- we have t- often said, and and we believe this, that we're living in the time of the end, aren't we not? But when did the time of the end start? Can we say for certain when the time of the end started? We can, and we're going to look at that today. And in order for us to understand when the time of the end began, we need to look at Revelation. We're going to go to Revelation chapter 10. Now, Revelation chapter 10, we have there the vision of the little scroll. Those of you who were with us um, last week on our afternoon presentation, Dr. McNulty actually uh, talked a little bit about Revelation 10, um, and, but today we're going to go into a little more details of Revelation 10 and how all this uh, fits together in us understanding not only the investigative judgment, but the 2300 days and uh, the, the, um, the uh, time of the end. So let's look at Revelation chapter 10, verse 1. Revelation chapter 10, verse 1. I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. Now, in Revelation, as you read the entire book, you you notice that there is a number of different angels in all the different chapters. They're all doing different things. And so here, uh, um, John says that he sees another angel, but notice that he calls this other angel mighty angel. He doesn't refer to any other angel in Revelation as a mighty angel. What we notice here is that this angel is described differently than other angels in the book of Revelation. So we need to figure out who this mighty angel is. So we're going to look at these characteristics we find there in verse 1 to to understand who this mighty angel is. So uh, notice again, um, no other angel in Revelation or the New Testament is arrayed with divine-like insignia as this angel. As this angel. So let's look at them. The first one, and he is clothed with a cloud. There, in verse 1, it tells us he's clothed with a cloud. Now, the cloud is a traditional symbol of the glory of God. You'll see there a number of passages, Exodus 19, Exodus 33 and 34, Numbers 11 and Numbers 12. It tells us, it shows us that the cloud is a symbol of the glory of God. So that's the first characteristics. Then he has a rainbow upon his head there in verse 1. Now, um, Earlier in chapter 4, uh, uh, John sees the throne of God. He is, uh, sees this rainbow encircling the throne of God. And so upon seeing this angel in chapter 10, we're also reminded again of the glory of God as seen in his uh, uh, throne. And then he has a face like the sun. His face was like the sun, it says. Now here, he actually, John sees Jesus in chapter 1 and describes him in the same way. This is probably also a symbol of the glory of God as alluded to 
You remember when Moses came down from Mount Sinai. He had been in the presence of God and his, his face was glowing. The same thing happened with Jesus when, when at the Mount of Transfiguration, his face was glowing. So again, the, 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 the face like the sun also reminds us of the glory of God. Now, we could say more about this, but I, I think that just those three characteristics help us to safely conclude that this mighty angel is none other than who? This is Jesus Christ. But now saying that, I know that maybe somebody that may, may feel a bit uncomfortable fidgeting in your seat, hold on. How can you say that Jesus is an angel? Hmm? Many, many of our critics lay their doubts or hang their doubts on this very thing because we say, well, hold on, Jesus is an angel. Remember, uh, uh, there is also the belief that the, uh, Michael, the archangel Michael, is Jesus, okay? And so when we mention the word angel, people get nervous because when we think of angel, what comes to our mind immediately is this being that's dressed in white with a halo and has wings, but angels are created. So when people hear us say that Jesus is either Mark, uh, uh, Michael the archangel or this mighty angel of Revelation 10, they immediately assume that we don't believe that Jesus is eternal, that we don't believe in the Trinity, and we know that that's not true. At Seventh-day Adventists, we believe in the Trinity, the unity of three co-eternal persons. Jesus existed from the beginning. But we, are, we have to understand what the word angel means. What the word angel means. Notice the word angel comes from the Greek word angelon, and that word means what? Messenger. Messenger. So notice Jesus, this mighty angel, this mighty being, comes with a message. And because he comes with a message, he is a messenger. And the word, the Greek word for messenger is angelon. We translate it as angel. I suppose that if, our, if the uh, translators of the Bible would ju just say this was a mighty messenger, we would be fine. But they call him an angel because that's the Greek word angelon. But just because we call Jesus an angel, we're not saying he was created. In this case, we're saying, uh, uh, and John is saying, that he sees this being that comes with a message. He, he is a messenger, but a messenger with divine-like characteristics. So this is Jesus. Jesus has an important message to share has an important message to share. All right. We also, we, we got to look at this uh, statement that, uh, or phrase, the angel of the Lord. This is just an example. In the Old Testament, there were times when there was what is called theophanies, which basically means Jesus uh, uh, disguised himself, sort of, and he appeared to people. Remember, he appeared to, to Abraham in Genesis 16. He appeared to Moses in Exodus 3. He appeared to Joshua in Judges 6. And the Bible calls him the angel of the Lord. And we already know that that was Jesus. That was a theophany, even though there's a word angel there. So again, all this to tell us that Jesus is this mighty angel. So in case of Revelation chapter 10, verse 1, notice Jesus has an important message to give to John. Thus he is referred to an uh, to as an angel, but with divine characteristics. Now, let, let's look at verse 2. Revelation chapter 10, verse 2, because there is a little scroll. In fact, you'll see that this little scroll is, is the center uh, of Revelation chapter 10. Revelation chapter 10, verse 2, he says, 
He had a little book. So this mighty angel has a little book, or depending on which version you have, a little scroll open in his hand. And he has his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Now, by saying that his left foot, uh, right foot is on the sea and the left foot on the land, John was stressing the, the importance of the dominion of this angel over the whole world and the significance of this message for the whole world. Remember, when we talk about Revelation 14 and the three angels' messages, we know that this message is for every tribe, tongue, and people. This is not a message that is just for the people in the United States or the people in, in Latin America. No, this is an important message for everyone. And so this mighty angel also has a, a message in this little scroll, and it is a message that must go to the entire world. Very significant. Notice verses 89. Revelation chapter 10, verses 89. Then the, the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go, take the little book, which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and said to him, give me the little book. And he said to me, take and eat it, and it will uh, make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. So notice John is told to do something with this book. He has a bittersweet experience, and we're going to touch on that here in a little bit. But there's something about this book that causes that bittersweet experience. Now, the question is, what's written in the book? That's what we want to know. What's written in this little scroll? Let's go back to verses 5 through 7. Verses 5 through 7. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, which is about to, uh, which is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished and he, as he declared to his servants, the prophets. Now, again, um, Dr. McNulty alluded to this uh, on our Saturday afternoon presentation, but basically what we see here, friends, is that there is a clear parallel between Revelation 10 and Daniel chapter 12. Now, we know that in order for us to understand Revelation, we must understand the book of Daniel. They're, they're sister books, okay? And we see a parallel, and that parallel is very, very important. Let me show you. Daniel chapter 12, verse 7. Then I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven, and swore by him who lives forever, that it shall be for a time, times, and half of a time, and when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all these things shall be finished. Daniel 12 and Revelation 10 are the only passages in Scripture that have an angel swearing an oath. The, 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 the language is very similar. The only difference is that while in Daniel chapter 12, verse 7, he swears that it shall be for a time, times, and half of a time, when we go to Revelation 10, he says there shall be delay no longer. That's the only difference between Daniel 10 and Revelation, or, or Daniel 12 and Revelation 10. 
Okay? So this is very significant. This is very significant. Furthermore, in Daniel 12.4, notice it says, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until when? Until the time of the end, many shall run to and fro, and the knowledge shall increase. The sealing, the shutting up of the book is a symbol, friends, that the, the, the book of Daniel in particular, the time prophecies would not be understood until the time of the end. So that means that at the time of the end, somehow the, 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 the knowledge of the book of the prophecies will, will be understood. This is why it says the knowledge shall increase. Oftentimes when we, when we talk about this passage in, in, in seminars, we often mention the fact that there's been an increase in technology in our, in our society, medicine, and all those things. And while that may be true, in context, the knowledge that shall increase is the knowledge of the book of Daniel. The knowledge of those time prophecies that could not be understood until the time of the end. Until the time of the end. So, since there's a parallel between Daniel chapter 12 and Revelation 10, the fact that the scroll is opened in in Revelation 10 means that now the time of the end has begun. Remember, it was supposed to be sealed, not understood, until the time of the end. Now it's open. So it's open, it means that we're now in the time of the end. Now, since the scroll is tied, the opening of the scroll is tied to the time of the end, when the prophecies of Daniel will be understood, we next, next we need to determine when did that time of the end begin. And notice it says, at the end of the time, times, and half of a time. So if we can figure out when the time, times, and half of a time begins and ends, we can understand when the time of the end began. Okay? Now, let's look at this this phrase, time, times, and half of a time. We've seen this before. By the way, this this period of time, time, times, and half of a time, we saw that earlier in Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 25, we read about this little horn power that rises out of the fourth beast and destroys three of the horns. This is the Antichrist power. And this Antichrist little horn power rules for a time, times, and half of a time. So it's talking about the same thing. So notice here, the word time. The word time in Scripture is often used to say a year. And one example of that we see also in Daniel chapter 4, where where Nebuchadnezzar was converted into some kind of beast for seven times, and history tells us that he was absent from his kingdom for seven years. So seven times, seven years. We know that the word time is another way of saying a year. Now, in the Jewish calendar, which, of course, Daniel is a Jew, so he's writing from that perspective, there's 360 days in a year. Then he says times in plural, so two years, 720, and half of a time, half of a year, 180 days. You do the math, that's 1,260 prophetic days. But we already know the rule for interpreting time prophecies, and that is that a prophetic day equals what? A literal year. So that means that the time, times, and half of a time is the same as saying 1,260 years. Now, Let's go back to Daniel 7. 
Because Daniel 7, there the Antichrist power, this little horn power, rises from the head of the beast unopposed, and, uh, and he actually destroys three of, the tri- uh, of, uh, of these Germanic tribes. Remember, Rome was divided by these ten tribes which make up what modern Europe is today, except for three of them because three of them no longer exist. Who, t- who can tell me the three, the three tribes? There's Vandals, the Heruli, the Vandals, and the Ostrogoths. Very good. Now, the Ostrogoths are the last one to be destroyed. They oppose the, the papacy. You remember, if you look at your history, in 533, Justinian makes the Pope, the Bishop of Rome, the head of all churches. There was a very significant date. But even though Justinian has said the Pope is going to be the head of all churches, he still had opposition. Now, a few of the other ones had been destroyed, but the Ostrogoths were still sticking around. It was in until 538 A.D. that the Ostrogoths are destroyed. Now the papal power rises unopposed. So we can say that the time, times, and half of the time began there. So time, times, and half of a time equates to 1,260 years from 538 to 1798. To 1798. And so then it seems clear, friends, then, that the time of the end began in 1798. In 1798, and as such, the portion, the prophetic portion of the book of Daniel, not understood before because God had told him, seal it until the time of the end. But now the time of the end has begun. Now we can understand the time prophecies of the book of Daniel. Now when we analyze chapter 8, specifically of the book of Daniel, we realize that Daniel could not understand the vision. He could not understand the vision. Notice in Daniel chapter 8, verses 26 and 27. And the vision of the evenings and mornings. So notice the vision of the evenings and mornings is the vision of the 2300 days, which is told is true. Therefore, seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. So notice this is not something... For his immediate time, remember, uh, and Daniel 8, 17 is for the time of the end. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. Afterward, I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. So notice Daniel, he, he was struggling so much that he even got sick because he couldn't understand the vision. And so what happens? Well, when in, in Daniel chapter 9... Gabriel is sent to him to explain the vision. Because remember, remember Daniel 9 has this, this great prayer of Daniel? And one of the things that Daniel was praying for was understanding. And so God sends Gabriel, go and explain the vision to him. But in order for us to make it easier, Gabriel breaks down the, uh, the prophecy in smaller chunks. Remember we studied about this in our topic on the second coming of Jesus when we talked about the seven-year tribulation where the, uh, our evangelical Christians' friends get that from. Daniel 9.25, Now know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks to three. Uh, the street shall be built again on the wall even in troublesome times. So the 70-week prophecy, which starts at the same time as the 2300-year prophecy. So here, again, Gabriel is trying to explain it to him, okay? So the start of it is the command to restore and build Jerusalem. Why did Jerusalem need to be rebuilt? Why? 
Who destroyed Jerusalem? Babylonians. The Babylonians. Remember, Babylon had destroyed the temple, had destroyed uh, the city. But now that Babylon was out of the picture, the Medo-Persians allowed the Jews to return and do their rebuilding. And that happens a couple of times. They rebuild, the work was stopped, and then they had to start over again. But historians tell us clearly that the, 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 this decree to restore and build Jerusalem was the one given by Artaxerxes, and that started in 457 B.C. So notice, by doing some math, we can determine when the 2300 prophecy ended and when the sanctuary, the cleansing of the sanctuary of Daniel 8.14 began. If we add 2,300 years to 457 B.C., 457 B.C. is the year that that decree to build Jerusalem was given. It takes us to the year 1844. 1844. And what would happen at the end of the 2,300 years? The sanctuary shall be cleansed. And the cleansing of the sanctuary was another way of saying the judgment would start. So the judgment starts in 1844. So this evidence that we've gone all over uh, this morning reveals that the scroll of Revelation chapter 10 must be the prophetic portion of the book of Daniel that was not understood until the time of the end began. In particular, these time prophecies, in particular, the 2300 days. Now remember what, Di what John is told to do. What was John told to do with the little book? To eat it, right? In Daniel 10 and uh, Revelation 10, 9, John is takes the scroll and eats it. Notice, to eat the scroll means to assimilate completely its message. Uh, it, it is to master thoroughly its contents and to make it a part of one's life. You to understand the message. By eating the scroll, notice, John assimilated it understood the contents of the prophetic portion of the book of Daniel as it relates to the 2300-day prophecy and the cleansing of the sanctuary. Now here we have to go into a little bit of our history, the Seventh-day Adventist history, okay? There's a, a very good book called Tell It to the World, and there's a movie. I don't know if any of you have watched the movie, Tell It to the World. If you haven't watched the movie, Tell It to the World, I am not getting any money for promoting the movie. I wish I was. But it is a very good movie. You can go on YouTube and watch it. It's about two hours long. And it's very, very accurate according to, uh, about the history of Adventism. It is a powerful movie, uh, especially when it goes into the call of Ellen White. It's a really, really good movie. And, and, and it goes a little bit over the history of Adventism. Now, here's from uh, the book uh, uh, the Message of Revelation, God Cares, The Message of Revelation by C. Mervyn Maxwell. Notice what he says. Close study led them, that is the Millerites, to narrow the date for the end of the period and the second coming to a day in October 1844. That's October 22nd. How their hearts beat with anticipation and joy as the long four day drew near. Now I want you to imagine that. Imagine that that this, that this prophecy was presented in such a way that you could, it, it clearly understood you were 100% sure Jesus was coming. I tell you, I wish Jesus came today, don't you? Nothing else matters. And so they really believe that Jesus was coming. Don't you think that's sweet news? It is very sweet news. He continues by saying, oh, how their hearts were broken when, 
when the glad expectations failed to materialize, the blessed hope did not happen and Jesus did not return. What a bitter experience it was. In fact, Ellen White writes about that, about the experience that she went through when you know, all her hopes and dreams to see Jesus now came to nothing. Now came to nothing because he didn't come. What a bitter experience. And, and so notice the experience of the Millerites was the same as John's experience. They believed it was the earth that was to be cleansed. By the way, the, 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 the statement of, of that the earth was the sanctuary, because that's what Miller believed, that this, the sanctuary to be cleansed was the earth, that's not something he invented either. Because many religious scholars in his day believed the same thing. He was not the first one to study the 2300-year prophecy. There were others who before him had studied it. They just came to different conclusions, and, and it wasn't until Miller that this took, you know, it took place and, and it really spread to the entire, uh, the entire country. So he didn't come up with this himself, all right? So again, he believed that the earth was the one who'd be cleansed, and therefore Jesus would return. The news was sweet to them, but when he did not return, the reality became bitter. So, so here, what we see here is that John chapter 10 and John's experience with the little scroll was a prophecy about the Millerites, about how they, 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 their experience would be bittersweet as well. Now, with a bittersweet experience, you would maybe be mad. Oh, I'm, I'm bitter about this. I don't want to have anything to do with this message anymore. And, and if you know your history, you know that many of those that were following Miller, what we call the early Adventists, once the great disappointment, this bitter experience, they, they decided to throw in the towel. They didn't have, want anything to do. In fact, when you look at the movie, uh, Tell It to the World, you'll see that. You'll see that. But there are others who stayed faithful, just like John. Because after John eats the scroll and has this bitter, uh, uh, bitter experience or bittersweet experience, notice what he's told in verse 11. You must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. Well, the natural question would be, what was he to prophesy again? What was he to prophesy again? Well, I'm going to leave you hanging with that. I'm going to leave you hanging that because next, next Sabbath, we'll continue with this series. We're going to answer the question, what was he to prophesy again? And what we're going to see is that what, what he had to prophesy again is related to the temple in heaven. And then the third part of this series, we're going to talk about why the judgment is necessary. Again, as I said at the beginning... Talking about judgment can make some people a little bit uneasy. But you know, the Bible tells us that we have an advocate in heaven. Who's that advocate? Jesus Christ the righteous. So Jesus is your lawyer. Not only is Jesus your lawyer, he is your judge. You think about that. Your judge and your lawyer are the ones who did everything to save you. Do you, do you have anything to be afraid of? No, friends. For the Seventh-day Adventist, and I, and I speak to, to you maybe because I know there may be somebody here who wants to throw away the investigative judgment doctrine because it's antiquated. They are out there, friends. Unfortunately, this is spreading like wildfire. This is why I was convicted of writing this book. Because there are many of us who don't know what we believe and why we believe it. 
You pay attention to, to many of those social media sites that have an axe to grind against Adventism, and you believe that instead of looking it up yourself in God's Word. That should not be. This is present truth. This is the message we must be proclaiming, friends. It's all about our Redeemer. Thanks for joining us. If you're ever in the Nashville area, come and visit us at the Nashville First Seventh-day Adventist Church. We're located at 2800 Blair Boulevard in Nashville, Tennessee. You may also visit us at nfsda.org.